This morning's preaching portion begins at verse 7 of Genesis 3 and runs through the end of the chapter in verse 24. This is the 10th sermon in a series that we've been going through this fall, what the Bible has to say about creation, a series on creation. This is also the final sermon in the series as we conclude in looking at the idea, which is the title of my sermon this morning, The Consequences for Sin. Now, if you're a Marvel fan, you know the importance of a good origin story. One such story is X-Men Origins Wolverine, which came out in 09 and details Wolverine's childhood as James Howlett and how he eventually comes to have the indestructible metal adamantium fused to his bones. Cool, huh? True Marvel fans are keen to track all of the intricate and even intimate details of the various aspects of the Marvel saga. Even the seemingly insignificant details are important. The slightest deviation from the storyline or a missed detail in the screenplay will elicit a massive protest by the hardcore fan base. And I love this kind of enthusiasm for a story. But what makes me sad, however, is that our interest in a fictional character like, say, Wolverine, and all of the details of his origin is not matched and exceeded by our interest in our own origin story detailed in the scriptures. Something that, if we're honest, has little to no impact on our daily lives, like a comic book story, gets all of our attention, and something which impacts not just our daily lives, but our moment-by-moment existence how we came to be, who we are, and what we've done with God's world is something that is largely, if not wholly, ignored. And this isn't just a problem with young sort of comic book fans. It's a problem for both young and old. It's a problem for both non-Christians and Christian. Men and women of any age pay far too little attention to our origins. Questions like, How did we come to exist? Or why is the world the way that it is? We either ignore or give passing, light, and superficial answers to. I think the answer to this problem is to take time, as we've done over the last 10 weeks, and solidify the foundations of our faith, to firm up our understanding of who we are, of who God is, what his world was made to be, and what we have done with it. And if you've been with us over the last 10 weeks, that, that's happened. You've been given a, a careful but also an overarching view of God's plan for you and his world, how it's been spoiled, and how he plans to restore and renew it again. The narrative of Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is a comprehensive picture about everything that you need to know about what God wants from you in the world. And the last 10 Sundays have been really an incredible opportunity. I hope you availed yourself of this opportunity to really look carefully at the basics of what it means to be a human being and to live for God, the creator in this world. So this morning is, is, a, is a climax of the series, and I'm glad you're with us this morning to be able to engage as the last chapter of the story of God's creation. Now, Last Sunday's sermon, we paused a little awkwardly right in the middle of this final chapter 
as the serpent was insinuating himself into Eve's mind with questions about what God really said and what God really meant and whether God, in fact, was motivated for uh, noble reasons. We saw Adam, her husband, with eyes wide open, rebelling against God and eating the forbidden fruit as well. But what happens as a result? What is the fallout? Will there be a reckoning? What are, as my title says, what are the consequences of this first sin? The consequences of sin, in order to understand them, we need to begin by first reviewing the story and seeing what is the blessed background, which we'll do in just a moment. But let's begin then first by reviewing the story in Genesis chapter 3. I'll I'll pick up at verse 7 and we'll run to the end of the chapter. This is God's eternal word. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I am naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will multiply, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his, for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, your word has been read, and as we just have sung, the unfolding of your words gives light and life. So may my 
words now and my explanations, Lord, as a preacher, and may the thoughts and questions and reflections of each one of our hearts, may they indeed be pleasing in your sight, and would you indeed give, give wisdom to the simple, in Jesus' name, amen. I first want us to consider the blessed background for the consequences of sin. In other words, it's hard to understand the consequences for sin or the reckoning which is before us here in the text without a clear picture or a reminder of the blessed condition in which our first parents found themselves. It's like a red blotch of blood on a white linen sheet. It's like a black drop of India ink on a fine white blouse. It's like a a chipped tooth and an otherwise perfect smile. These flaws stand out all the more vividly and graphically in light of their pristine background. These examples show that you can't really grasp the consequences of sin without first truly understanding the high privilege and favor with which our first parents were endowed. Think about it like this. It's one thing to accidentally lose a precious diamond. It's another to just recklessly toss it into the ocean and laugh. It's one thing to take careful care, as most men do, with their wallets and have it accidentally stolen from you through no fault of your own. But it's another to take it out of your pocket and willingly, even gratefully, put it into the hands of a known thief. It's one thing to lose a well-fought football or soccer match when your star player goes down with an injury after attempting a a final point or a final score. It's another thing to surrender the match even before you start. What then are the blessings that were given to our first parents before they fell into sin? I see three blessings that stand out in our story by way of review in Genesis 1 and 2. These are three instances. Let's remind ourselves this is not grace. Grace is understood in the Bible as a response in man's redemption to the existence of sin. But these are, as I've called them, blessings. These are uh, gifts. These are instances of God's high favor to our first parents. And the first one is that they were made in God's image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In a few sermons earlier, we pointed out that men and women equally bear the image of God, and the image of God in the ancient world, the image of a God, was only given to kings or to royalty. And so by endowing all humans with the image of God, the point is being made in Genesis that every single person that you meet, every single person surely that is listening to this message this morning, has the marks of royalty in his or her life. This is an instance of God's high favor. He could have simply made creatures. He didn't have to do this, but he did. Being made in the image is a blessing of God. But not only is man made in God's image, he received supernatural revelation. Supernatural revelation. You see, it's one thing to be made in God's image. But then God communicates with man. The, the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's additional information. Extra data on top of man's creation. Man is not only being made in the image of God, but God is communicating to man how he wants man and women to live in his world. We're accustomed, perhaps, as, as Christians, as New Testament Christians, 
to think of supernatural revelation only in response to sin, and this is true. Because of sin, our eyes are blinded and our hearts are darkened and our ears are stopped and we're resistant to God's word and he has to supernaturally reveal himself to us. We pray, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your all. This is true, but what I want you to see is that God supernaturally and additional to his creation of man reveals his will to man in the garden. This is a blessing. This is an instance of high favor. And it either doesn't tell him the creation mandate. He also revealed the terms of a relationship with man in Genesis 2.15. What this means is that God stated for man unequivocally how man might be in fellowship with God. Of all the trees of the garden you may eat, it says, but of the one tree, Genesis 2.16, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. In order to know how man might attain full, perfect, and final communion with God, for he had communion with God, but it was susceptible to, to failure. It was, it was a probationary communion. It was a communion that had not yet been consummated. It was a perfect but not yet perfected relationship with God. In order for that perfect but not yet perfected relationship with God between Adam and Eve and, and God to be consummated, he would have had to have passed that test. And God told him this. He he conveyed this information to him, indicating God's interest in having a relationship with our first parents. This relationship, of, this covenantal relationship, by the way, is known as the covenant of works, sometimes called the covenant of life. So made in God's image, he received supernatural revelation, and finally, he experienced true religion. Now, I'm not talking about blue jeans here. True religion. Religion has fallen on hard times, in these modern days. People are apt to contrast, starkly contrast, a, a, a real bona fide relationship with God and dry, boring religion. Prayers and kneeling and standing and giving money especially. And there's some truth to this, but it's not religion per se that is at fault. It's the corruption of true religion. It's the bastardization. It's the prostitution of religion which we're pointing at when we're talking about these abuses and corruptions and poison that we see in so many churches and denominations and religions today. No, true religion in the Bible is, is put this way by Voss. It is personal discourse between God and man such that man has face-to-face -face communion with his maker as friend holds fellowship with friend. This is true religion. God knows no other religion. Anything besides this is an utter mockery. It's a counterfeit religion. Think of it as friend holds fellowship with friend. I was thinking about one of my friends the other day who's going through hard times, and he lives quite a distance from me. And just there was something in my heart. I, I longed to sit down with him and, and to look into his face and hear his heart and pray with him and walk with him and talk with him, my friend. This is true religion. But as soon as sin enters the picture, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, which we covered last week, 
The woman eats of the fruit and she hands it to her husband with her and he also eats of it. This true religion is broken. It's, it's corrupted. Our first verse of this morning's passage, Genesis 3-7, already shows what has been lost in terms of this true religion. Look at it. It says, The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they, they uh, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Two things... Uh, are evident in verse 7 of this text. The first thing is that they knew that they were naked. Now, they already were naked, and they were unashamed, Genesis 2.25. So whatever they knew after sinning was not simply that they were naked. They already knew that they were naked. The difference is that the knowledge of the nakedness now in verse 7 brings shame and separation. It's a direct consequence of man's violation of his friendship with God, which in turn had repercussions in his friendship with his wife. The knowledge of his nakedness was more like being uncomfortable, being so close and vulnerable to another human being, now that I've disrupted the close, safe friendship and fellowship that I once had with God. The difference is not that they had self-awareness, which they surely had before the fall, but they had the wrong kind of self-awareness. Due to sin, it is no longer safe to be around other humans. And in earlier in the service, I quoted from 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. What John is saying in his first epistle is this. Your friendships are never more secure than when you are walking with God along with your friend. And there is nothing more insecure than a friendship or a marriage in which one or both of you are attempting to establish your lives independent from God. And you will know that you are naked and you will be ashamed. And you will forever be clawing your way up a sand hill trying to get something that God will not give to you because sin has separated not only you and him, but you and one another. So the greatest commandments of Scripture to love God and love our neighbor represent the restoration and the hope of restoration, which we'll be getting to toward the end of my message. But they know more than just that they're naked. They then attempt to cover their nakedness, in verse 7, with a little craft project. Now, fig leaves can be quite large, and so, particularly in, in the ancient Near East, so these were large enough leaves to cover the, the private parts of the first man and the first woman to give them something like affecting clothes, clothing, but this is the wrong kind of self-care, if I may put it this way. Surely Adam and his wife knew to take care of themselves before sin entered the world, but this self-care is a response to the, the rupture that has taken place because of their sin. And rather than asking for God to address the brokenness that has ensued, they attempt to address it themselves. They use human rather than divine means for repairing the breach of their relationship with God. Fig leaves has come to mean in the vernacular any human attempts, flimsy, fragile attempts to fix a problem ineffectively. A fig leaf solution. So they're made in God's image. This is a blessing. They receive supernatural revelation. This is a blessing. And they experience true religions. These are background blessings, I'm saying, to the event in which man and woman plunge themselves into an estate of sin and misery by eating the forbidden fruit. 
So what is that sin and what happens next? Now that we see the blessed background, my second point is the divine confrontation. And this takes up really the the majority of this chapter, chapter 3. With the blessed background in view, now we see God coming to confront the first man and the first woman. But what is interesting, and we note this right off the bat, that while man and woman both were equally participating in the act of sin, the confrontation comes from God seeking out the man. And this shows in God's design before sin entered the world, carrying on after sin enters the world. In God's design, man is the covenant head of his relationship with his wife. Man is the representative of a household. And man is accountable for his family. So in stage one of this confrontation, God appears in a sovereign storm. Look at verse 8 of our text. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now this doesn't sound like a storm. It sort of sounds like I hear birds chirping and I see the butterflies flapping their wings and a shaft of light passing through the trees and a quiet garden path. And now I need to speak with an English accent. The cool of the day. This is how the ESV and other translations describe this tranquil scene. And it may be what's intended. It may be simply a way of articulating an ordinary interaction of man and God in in their uh, friendship. But the word for cool, my ESV has a footnote, and if you look in that footnote, a word for cool is, is also can be translated wind. And the idea of day can sometimes be translated as storm or judgment. And we see this phrase, the storm of judgment or the wind of judgment elsewhere in the prophets. And I suspect that if that's not what primarily is intended, it certainly is an underlying meaning so that when we see God first approaching in confrontation, he comes in a storm of judgment. That God is seeking out man in a storm of judgment. And this is the first stage of the divine confrontation. Evison notes that paradise has now become a courtroom and the keeper of the grounds is a criminal on trial. So whether it's the cool of the day or a storm of judgment, either way, the confrontation has begun as as God appears. And then God, secondly, in the second stage of the confrontation, he asks rhetorical questions. He he does this in verse 9 and verse 11 and verse 13. And it's interesting, you'll note he doesn't ask any questions of the serpent. The serpent's doom is sealed. So already, even in asking questions, we know God doesn't need information. Why is the Lord asking a question three times he asks a question that surely he knows the the answer to? Well, I think the simple fact is that already we see an expression of the mercy of God here, which I'll come to in my third point. He's putting the first humans on trial and giving them an opportunity to give an answer for themselves in a sense to repent of what they've done. But they don't take this opportunity, do they? And did you? When you're confronted with your sin, is it your first reflex? Say, oh, you're right. I did it. I am guilty. No. Usually the first stage of confrontation is a little bit like the first stage of grief. You're in utter shock. And then you're in utter denial. And then you're shifting and saying, well, maybe this and maybe that. And you're 
seeing how you can cut the cake up and somehow put a positive spin on this ugly thing. And if God is indeed merciful, at long last you will put your hand over your mouth, fall on your knees and bow your head with David and say, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Yes, he asks rhetorical questions. And in a, I think one of the most egregious statements in the entire Bible, Adam tries to implicate God in his sin. Did you catch that? He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman who you gave me. Wow. That's some noive. I mean, the pluck of the creature to blame the creator for his sin, to say the good gift that you were just singing in praises of not too long ago. Oh, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he names her in his affection and adoration. She's now the source of the problem. Poor Adam. So stage one, God appears in a sovereign storm in this confrontation. And then two, he asks rhetorical questions. And then he assigns a fitting or appropriate punishment. I won't have time to fully develop this this morning, but you'll notice that in each case, the one who is cursed receives an appropriate curse for the deed that was done. It's fitting. It's a, it's a, the curse is corresponding not only to the created design of man, woman, and the fallen condition of Satan, but also it is corresponding to the, to the thing that they had done. Now first I want to define curse. Curse is tossed around in language perhaps. It, in this case, I, I simply want you to think of curse as assigning punishment for guilt incurred. Assigning punishment for guilt incurred. This is what a curse is. And so God, in his confrontation, comes first and foremost to assign, sovereignly assign a punishment, a fitting punishment, for the guilt that has actually been incurred. Now, this is important to highlight because in our lives, when we curse our fellow human beings, please read James chapter 3 on this as well. The ladies have been studying James 3. James highlights the foolishness of human cursing. Too often, when you curse someone, when you let... Let rip a, a choice string of words in traffic or under your breath or in your mind. You're assigning punishment inappropriately without any authority for guilt that hasn't happened. But God as the creator and Lord is, a, is very much in the right to assign an appropriate punishment for real guilt incurred and that's what he does. And he alone is in a position to do this, for sin is contrary to God. It's contrary to his nature. Sin is contrary to all of his names and attributes. It's contrary to his works. Sin is contrary to all his holy laws. It defiles his image, and it is against his glory. Sin is also contrary to man. It's contrary to man's good, to man's health, to our comfort, to our joy. It's contrary to our future and it's contrary to our fellows. 
So God is right to recognize the guilt that has been incurred here and bring curses upon man. And he begins then with cursing the serpent in verses 14 and 15. The the serpent is cursed in two ways, physically and relationally. Verse 14 details the physical aspect of this curse. He's relegated to moving upon the ground in a certain manner. Now, one commentator thinks that prior to this moment, the snake moved in a different way. Perhaps he had more mobility than this. I have no idea if that's true. It certainly reads like that's a possibility, but there are parts of the Bible I simply don't understand, and this is one of them. But I'm not sure it's ultimately that important. What is important that we recognize that in the, the creature of the serpent, our enemy, Satan, has chosen to make himself known. And so using the figure of the serpent, a real serpent, a real snake, God curses Satan himself. And we see that in the relational curse described in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity is just another word for now they're enemies. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This relational curse hints at the fact that there will be a kind of ongoing battle between the offspring of the woman and with the offspring or seed of the serpent. This battle is called enmity, and it extends beyond the mere existence of poison in a snake's fang. It's not merely physical, although we're told in Isaiah that in the, in the new heavens and the new earth that a child will play at the hole of a, of a cobra, implicating or, or implying that the poisonous aspect of a serpent's bite will no longer be present in the new world. But the enmity, I believe, is even more to the spiritual battle between Satan and his allies and the children of God. This is a hint, in other words, that among the women's children will be those who fight on behalf of God. We'll call them God's warriors or the the woman's true children, the woman's seed and those who fight against God, and thus are called the serpent's seed. In the New Testament, in Romans 16, 20, Paul takes up this theme of the spiritual battle when he offers his prayer for the church at Rome. He says, may the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. I believe that's an allusion in Romans 16 to this passage in Genesis 3:15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Why the order there? Well, bruising the head is another way of referring to crushing it, according to the Apostle Paul. But what about this heel? I think we could read 3.15 like this. He, this this, uh, generation of people, and I think it's all of God's people, participate in this spiritual battle. But it it is interesting that it concentrates in the a third person singular pronoun, he. It's an individual that will crush the serpent's head. I think we have here a hint of what is described as the first gospel promise in the Bible. All the way back in Genesis 3, we see a glint or a glimmer of the sending of the Son of God who would crush the serpent's head, but in the process, he would be wounded. Now, his wound isn't just a bruise. He had five bleeding wounds, and he hung on a cross with blood streaming down his forehead. 
And on this bloody cross, he breathed his last and died. That doesn't sound like a bruise to me. But like a bruise is soon healed, so also Jesus, though he died on the cross for your sins and my sin in crushing the serpent's head, the third day he was raised from the dead. And in his resurrection, we see that, in fact, the blow that fell to him was not ultimately fatal. That though he truly died, he also truly lives. We'll come a little bit more detail to that gospel promise in a moment, but let's look briefly at Eve's curse and at Adam's curse. Eve is also cursed in two ways. She's cursed physically in relation to giving birth to her children. In verse 16, it will be in pain and in suffering. She's also cursed relationally. If the text says your desire, verse 16b, will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. What does this mean? Well, the word desire can mean two things. I'm not sure which one it is, and I have a suspicion it may be a little bit of both. Desire can be kind of a slavish, servile, servile attitude towards her husband, such that she sees in her husband her entire existence depending. You'll crave his favor. You'll crave, no longer be, stand secure in your image, image-bearing as a woman of God but you'll servilely or, or a, a craving sort of voice slavishly depend on your husband. And then the ruling over her would be something like a, an oppression. That might be what it means. But desire can also mean covet, as in Genesis 4-7, sin is crouching in the door, but you must master it. The word mastery there is the same thing as the word for desire. It may mean that Eve will go in the opposite direction. Instead of cowering and depending on her husband, which is uh, far below the image-bearing stature that she should have, instead, she's trying to lord it over her husband as if she towers above him as his intellectual and moral giant, taking command where God has asked and assigned her as a place of a helper and not as a ruler or commander, in which case the rulership of the husband may simply be his fight for dear life. Whatever it is, the reality of our lives today, I think, can reflect both of these dynamics. People's dreams of marriage and a woman's aspirations of being in a relationship with a man are never fully realized. She struggles either with an unholy and an unhealthy dependence on her husband or with the constant grasping and lusting and coveting for a lordship over her husband. And so all of our hopes and all of our dreams of being in relationship often come to an end. Though I will encourage you with this in the gospel, and you read this in Ephesians 5, in Christ we see a partial restoration of the picture of man and woman as equal partners in Eden with unique roles, which both of them are content to fulfill. The woman as an equal but corresponding helper to the man, and the man as a servant leader who guides his family with strength and courage. Well, Adam's curse impacts him vocationally in terms of the way that he works, and it also impacts him in terms of his mortality. Thorns and thistles will be the product of his labor. It will come by the sweat of his brow. I, I, I tried to plant some grass in my yard this year, and it, it involved uh, renting um, an aerator for 
the soil. You know what an aerator is. It's a, it's a, a wheel with, with pipes in it that are about an inch wide. And these pipes rotate around an, an axis or an axle. And as you, as you grind forward, these pipes puncture uh, chambers, uh, holes in the soil, <laughs> and kick out these, these giant clods of dirt. And it was like riding a bucking bronco. <laughs> and for the whole week, my arms have been sore and aching. And I went through, you know, I don't know how many glasses of water and T-shirts and so forth. And, and I don't even know if it's going to work. You know, I'm too late in the season. Thank you, Adam. Thorns and thistles. Futility, vanity, what I, what I try to do with my hands may or may not result in, in a good output. And will certainly be met with much resistance along the way. What, what's the saying, guys? Uh, there's never, you never get one trip to the hardware store. It's always at least two or three. Can I get an amen? Thorns and thistles. And it's, it's funny, but it is our reality. And it's not God's plan. It wasn't how he designed it. The ease of carrying out this commission to fill the earth with beautiful products of our labor. Enjoy his partnership with our wives. It's not a question of one or the other working. Both are working in this creation mandate. But it's easy and joyful and glorious and harmonious and fruitful. But the curse that falls on man makes it empty and vain and frustrating and hard. And ultimately, men, your work will kill you. That's what it says. All the days of your life you would toil, and then it's back to the dust, baby. Now why this dust? Well, God chose as part of the curse on man's mortality to stipulate the substance from which he was made, saying that's what you're going back to. I raised you from the dust for a very specific purpose. I endowed you with my image. I gave supernatural revelation to you. And you had friend-to-friend fellowship with me. And now you're going back to the dust and death. That's the curse of man. And it is interesting because this particular curse on Adam includes not just him, but also his wife. And so there's a kind of inequality in the curse And let's remember that, women, as we think about how hard it may be to submit to a sinful man in your life, and it's hard, I understand this. The curse is not equal. It affects man and woman differently in in an unequal way. Spit that out. Boss puts it this way, a man struggle with the soil. The soil will conquer and swallow him in death. Then God affects the curse by expelling man from the garden and prohibiting them from re-entering the garden by their own efforts. You see this beginning in verse 22 of our passage. The expulsion from the garden implies in addition to man's experiencing physical death, he experiences a kind of spiritual death as well. This consists in something that corresponds to man breaking the face-to-face communion with God by his sin. God responds by separating, physically separating man from the presence, not of man's garden. This is the garden of God. So man is removed 
read in light of Genesis 3.19, man's removal of the garden in 3.23 means he is being exposed to death. That he's being given over to mortality. Had man stayed in the garden, he would not have died, so the separation from God is the beginning both of a spiritual and a physical death. And because of this, or even perhaps in addition to this, man is prohibited from re-entering the garden. And every child loves the picture of the cherubim. This is a wild, heavenly creature that no one really knows what it looks like, but it has wings, at least one pair of wings. And the cherubim always show up in the Bible as the guardians of God. And it's interesting, so important are the cherubim that when the tabernacle is constructed, the curtains of the tabernacle have woven into the very fabric pictures of the cherubim. Now the curtains are to separate the priest from entering the holy place. And what do we have hanging on the curtains but a reminder of the cherubim? that are barring the entrance to Eden. And likewise, on the Holy of Holies, the so-called mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place, what do we have but two cherubim with their wings covering that holy box, symbolizing that the place where God himself dwells, the garden of God, as typified in that holy tabernacle, is being guarded by these angelic sentries. And this sword, it's the coolest part for people who like this sort of thing. It's a sword that's on fire, and it says it's spinning about. So it's a whirling sword, or it's got whirling flame blades. Keeping anyone from approaching. And most likely, whatever geographic place that Eden was on the earth, it is no longer accessible in any way by human beings until the new world brings it back. Well, we need to end this morning by looking not only at the blessed background and the divine confrontation, but its gracious and merciful promise. The, the, uh, the reckoning for sin has, or it concludes, with a gracious and a merciful promise. The Bible contains a worthy prayer that I want all of you to remember in connection with my third point, and it is this. God, in your wrath, remember mercy. In fact, let's say that together. In your wrath, remember mercy. And that's what we see throughout this passage. God's mercy throughout this confrontation shows up again and again and again. God sought out Adam and questioned him. In your wrath, remember mercy. God didn't have to seek him out. The, the father seeks out the son. That doesn't have to be that way. Only a merciful God would seek out a, re a rebel sinner such as Adam. And he questioned him. Not once, twice, three times he questions man and woman. He didn't have to do that. But in his wrath, he remembers mercy. He was giving an opportunity for his children to confess. And in the midst of his wrath, he is remembering mercy. And then notice, even in the curses, he's preserving the creational institutions of Birth, children, and marriage, and work, and food. He's not abolishing and annihilating these good gifts. And so for some young people of this generation to say, I'm not going to have children because it's too hard, or it's wrong, or it's bad, or I don't want to bring children into this world, is a, a complete denial of the Genesis narrative. 
Yes, it's hard. Yes, there will be much wrong. Yes, it's difficult. But in God's wrath, he remembers mercy. And so however hard it may be, women, for you to bear children, God is blessing this institution. And he's saying in a merciful way, there's pain attached to this, but it will not overwhelm you. It will not overpower you. And thanks to modern medicine, we have other things that help as well. So God preserves these creational institutions, and God provides clothing for man to, to substitute for his poor efforts to cover himself in verse uh, verse 9 or verse 8 of our text, verse 7, they made loincloths. God comes back and covers them with garments of skin in verse 21. This is a little bit of an indication, I think, of the future teaching in the scriptures that by the shedding of blood, man's sin will be covered. It's a hint of that, I believe. There's an indication that Adam even realizes that God is remembering mercy in the midst of his wrath because After the curses are completed in verse 20, the man calls his first wife a new name, Eve, Hava, which means life giver. There's no way he would have called her Eve if he didn't believe that there was hope for him and his wife and even the human race. He recognizes that God remembered mercy in the midst of his wrath, and even the expulsion from the garden is a kind of a mercy, isn't it? Because sinful man had he reached out his hand to take of the tree of life, would have been confirmed in his sin eternally. And so the caution and the warning that God says, and he speaks amongst his triune persons, lest he eat from the tree of life and live forever. This isn't like God's afraid that he's going to have an imposter in in the court. I believe it's to be interpreted by saying this, that God knows that if man were to do that, confirmed in his sin he'd be confirmed forever in judgment and then as we've seen there is a way back to eden that's promised it's through the woman that the craft of the devil brought sin and death into the world so also through the woman god will give grace to the fallen human race by sending a conqueror and a deliverer the seed of the woman he will crush the serpent's head I've called my sermon this morning, The Consequences of Sin. And I noted the importance in my opening remarks of knowing your own origin story. In Wolverine's case, he's born with certain privileges, but he's not able to use them effectively. If you've seen any of the movies, there's a whole trilogy just about this one character. And only when he receives a certain treatment does he become the conqueror that Marvel fans have come to know and love. But he's a kind of anti-hero. He's far from perfect. He doesn't even like himself. He's constantly troubled, anguished in his own mind. He's saddled with broken memories of his past, of his own sense of failure and loss, even of his own limitations as the mighty Wolverine. He's limited. Ultimately, his powers are nothing more than the product of human efforts to perfect the fallen human race. In this sense, he's covered with nothing but fig leaves. But God provides a more permanent and perfect solution for the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We know better. We know that our lives are not a fictional tale and that our origins in Genesis are no mere fantasy. We know that only God can solve the problem that we have with our sin. And he does so by sending the seed of the woman born in a manger 
that he might destroy the works of the devil and cast out the prince of this world. Kick him out that he might reign forever and ever. In God's gracious promise, your image is restored. By God's gracious promise in Christ to send a redeemer to destroy the serpent, supernatural revelation, the Bible is once again made accessible to you. You can read and understand the will of God and actually do it in your lives. By God's gracious promise, you may once again experience true religion. Not the prostituted kind simply exists to lift up men and to abuse and to steal and to fleece the sheep. But face-to-face communion with God, personal discourse between man and his creator, a renewal of your awareness of God's character and the ability not only to dwell, but to enjoy dwelling with God and never to lose it again. For if you have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ in your life, it is the guarantee that not only is God with you today, but nothing will ever separate you again from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your holy word this morning. Thank you that it is our story. We've seen this all along. It's not just a mythical account of the distant past, but it is true human history. And more than that, it's our history. And we need it. We need to know these things. We need to get down to the DNA. We need to get down to the cellular level building blocks of our lives. These foundational truths, Lord, are critical for our health, physical and moral and spiritual well-being. And we live in a world in which much of this has been forgotten or lost. So it's up to us as your people to recover the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves and our calling in this world, not only for our own lives, individuals and families, but also for the towns we live in, for our streets, for our neighbors, for our workplaces, our schools, most of which have gone astray after worldly patterns of progress, advancement built on human myths and wish dreams. We have a more sure word, and so Lord, give it to us, and we take it. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.